Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the Universe Within podcast. This episode of the show is being sponsored by the Amazonian Plant Healing Center, the Temple of the Way of Light. The temple is a place I've worked at for a number of years now, I believe eight years, and I can really attest to the quality of the work they do. They work with the Shipibo people, um, offering 12-day ceremonies or 12-day workshops, six ceremonies, working with four different Shipibo curanderos or doctors, uh, two to three facilitators, a pre-ceremony yoga teacher, vegetalistas, which are like herbalists, uh, bone doctors. There's really just a, an amazing group of people, an amazing uh, support staff, and it's just a, a place where it's really conducive to to go down and to go really deeply into this plant medicine work. Um, I've worked there. I've, I've worked with thousands of people now, and it's really just amazing seeing the transformation that people go through. So if you're interested in working with plant medicine, specifically ayahuasca, and you're looking to come down to Peru, it's a really amazing place to go and experience that. So for more information, you can check out their website at templeofthewayoflight.org. Uh, to find out more information about that, and that link will be in the show notes. Also, myself and my colleague Marav, who I interviewed in, I believe it was episode number 28, uh, will be running dietas or diets, which is the traditional way to learn directly from plants uh, here in Peru in the Sacred Valley. The first one is coming up soon, beginning in March, March 3rd until the end of the month. And then we have another one scheduled in May, I believe May 1st to the 17th. Um, but we'll probably extend that. So it'll be the, the months of uh, May and potentially June as well. So that's a really amazing opportunity if you've worked with plants or even if you never have to really go into isolation uh, practice fasting and 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 ingesting a, a, a plant that's a teacher, usually a tree, and, and really learning deeply from that experience. So if you'd like more information about that, you can check out my website at nicotianarustica.org or Marav's site at tobaccodiets.com, and both of those links will be in the show notes as well. So my guest for today is my friend Aileen. I met her here in the Valley through a mutual friend, uh, and she's a really interesting woman. She's by trade a botanist and a plant biologist. She's been doing a lot of research with uh, mossy plants and the effect uh, that she's able to diagnose or to study those plants and see the effects of climate change, particularly working in the cloud forests here in Peru and uh, also some other places she lives, uh, places in Africa and India. And um, she's really fascinating. So we had a really interesting talk about her work, about plants, um, about climate change, about uh, sacred medicine, and just the effects of responsibility and decision-making, and just some really interesting topics. I, I really enjoy talking to her. I learned a lot from her, and I think you guys will too. So if you are enjoying this podcast and you're able to help out, that's really appreciated. A really good way to do that is via Patreon. Uh, there Again, there's a link in the show notes, and you can sign up. It's kind of like a subscription service and for even just a dollar a month uh, and, and upwards you there's different tiers you can sign up for and uh, with that pledge and donation you get various things back things like early access to shows Q&A's bonus material extended footage things like that so that's a really big help 
to me to help to bring on these guests like Aileen and uh, to continue to do this podcast, to keep uh, producing new content and sharing what I think are these really amazing voices. So if you're able to do that, thank you very much to all the Patreon supporters who've already done that. Thank you very much. I deeply appreciate it. There's also the option of direct donating via PayPal. There's a link in the show notes. Um, And then if you're not able to do that, simply going on the YouTube channel, the Universe Within podcast homepage, and subscribing to the show, turning on the notification bell, and liking the video. Um, It's a really simple thing you can do, but that really helps with the algorithms and getting the show out to a bigger audience. And then with the audio version, uh, going on Apple Podcasts, also subscribing to the show, and leaving a starred rating and a short review. That's really helpful with the audio version in the same way, getting the show out to a bigger audience. So I think that's it. Uh, Without further ado, here is my conversation with Aileen. Thank you for doing this. So we have a mutual friend, Bruce. Uh, so shout out to Bruce. <laughs> but he he introduced me to you, and he actually recommended that you'd be a good guest. And then it turns out we're neighbors. And then talking to you, I guess that was probably like a month ago. Uh, it seemed like you'd be a really good guest. You have a really interesting story. So maybe just to start, maybe you can say a little bit about your history, where you're from, and what what brought you to Peru, what what you're interested in. I guess basically what brought you here to Arin in, in Peru? <laughs> um, in a nutshell, um, I guess I came to Peru to do my research project, to work in the cloud forest and in Amazon forest. And that was like 13 years ago. And I've been coming here ever since. Um, but what I'm in Arin is really because of the, of the pandemic, because I got locked down and I couldn't do my work. I couldn't go to the forest and then... Through friends, I ended up living in Waran, and then I came to live in Arin. And yeah, but my connection to Peru is really through my work with uh, with plants. Mm. So you're you're a botanist by trade. Yes. So I'm a I'm a botanist, um, plant biologist, plant plant biochemistry, um, climate research, and I would I would describe myself as a as a canopy researcher. Mm. And fo- focusing on um, on mosses, mossy plants, uh, as indicators for climate, mm. climatic variation. That's my, I'd say that's one of my um, main focuses of work that has been for the last no, 13, 14 years almost now. And and what is what is the difference between those different fields? Like, what's the difference between botany and um what did you say, a biologist? <laughs> plant with biology, Plant yeah. biologist, yeah. So botany, I mean, I'm a trained, um, um, educated botanist, so I, I can go around, collect plants, describe plants, um, name plants. That's one of my um, uh, part of training I've done. But also then I, I specialize in biochemistry, so the constituents of plants, um, like secular metabolites, for, for example, for uh, medicinal purposes or for uh, plant-animal interactions. Um, but also, uh, that was also my really like pet 
uh, interest area, subject area. Um, but also um, I got really interested in the conservation and then climate change research and, and just exploration of ecosystems. And later on in my career, like for my PhD, I got into tree climbing. So I became a canopy, canopy researcher and then specializing on the, the oldest group of plants, uh, mossy plants. And that really brought me to Peru. Mm. But previous to that, I worked as a, as a witch's assistant, looking at uh, medicinal properties of plants and constituents of plants. So I have kind of a varied background. Kind of a, I am a plant biologist, botanist, yeah, mm-hmm. I guess. And you, you're from Poland originally? Yeah, or so Czech? originally, yeah. yeah so, <laughs> so I was born in Poland and as a child I moved to Germany for almost 10 years. I went to secondary school there. And then I moved to Ireland for almost two years, and then to Scotland. To actually became a, to become a, a therapist. Mm-hmm. I originally wanted to become a therapist, and then uh, during my first year of university, I studied psychology and biology, and I got inspired by one really wonderful person called Philip Smith, who like just really brought the, the love or passion of plants into my life. And from there on, it just became plants. Mm. <laughs> all, all different aspects of plants. And because I had a background in um, working with people, working as a, a multi-care worker, and also was interested in art therapy, uh, occupational therapy, I thought, oh, you know, I could, I could study psychology, you know, and, and enter that, that route into, into art therapy. And that brought me into, like, connection to plants but I had that from childhood I grew up on a farm and my my granny used to give me herbs so I was always interested on the herbal sort of medicine aspect of plants but then I started I kind of got to know um, the more kind of biodiversity botanical side of plants and so the herbal side of plants always has been one of my main interests but I did not uh, pursue it as a career until I became a research assistant in London uh, mm. in Kew Gardens which was, which was really wonderful. In Kew Gardens? Kew Gardens, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And then what brought me then to climate research was a trip to Africa, um, to Cameroon, where I, um, as assistant, helped collecting plants for a um, conservation checklist. So basically, when you want to conserve an area, you need to go, you need to look what is there uh, to, 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 to say, like, it is valuable, it is species-rich or not. So I helped as a volunteer collecting plants and describing them, you know, measuring them, and then also naming them. And I was at the herbarium in Kew Gardens. And in, in parallel, I started my job as a research assistant in biochemistry, looking at the constituents of plants. So the trip to Africa really changed my whole perspective on life because I'd never really traveled outside of Europe before that. That was in my late, mid to late 20s. And when I saw the African jungle, I understood what biodiversity meant I, I saw the diversity at all levels, animals, plants, just, um, it changed my life. And when I went back, when I got back to UK to my work in the lab, which I, I really loved, I really loved the lab work and I loved biochemistry and all that. But another year or so, and I quit my job because I, I couldn't like, I couldn't be stuck in the lab, basically. I needed to work for conservation. And another project um, that brought me to Peru came up working on climate change and conservation. Climate change and conservation for me is, is, is a connected area of, of research and of interest. 
So that brought me, so through, through medicinal plants London, Africa, African jungle Cameroon, um, to climate research conservation, brought me to Peru in 2008 for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I've been coming here ever since. Mm-hmm. So um, most people probably get to know Peru um, um, now through the master plants, medicinal plants, um, visionary plants. For me, it was really the, the mosses. <laughs> so when I tell people, Why, what do you do in Peru? You work on plants. And I tell them I work on plants. They go like, do you work on medicinal plants? And I'm like, no, actually I work on mossy plants <laughs> as indicators for climate and also um, in relation to conservation, habitat conservation, ecosystem functioning, all that. You know? But obviously medicinal plants and everything to do with plants is, is in my, within my interest. So. Mm-hmm. But my work has been mostly um, um, climate change and conservation. That's probably quite a long answer to a very, <laughs> very basic question. <laughs> no, that's great. So... You're you're interested in mosses. I mean, I would imagine all of those countries, uh, Poland, Germany, Scotland, Ireland, there, there's a lot of moss. So was that part of like the, the training, the field work was, was actually going out and learning hands-on or it's mostly lab work? So um, from Poland, so I left as a child. I grew up on a farm and so my connection, my first connection to plants was on the farm with my grandparents, my grandmother, animals, just being really outdoor child, climbing trees, you know, just being quite wild. <laughs> um, but um, so I don't actually don't know that much about Polish um, flora, fauna, because I left as a child and I haven't been back uh, much since. In Germany, I left after high school, so um, I had I have some background of like traveling and camping and all that. But my real contact to um, plants, flora, um, different types of plant species, really began in, in Scotland. Mm. This is why I began to stand, study uh, botany and plant science in Edinburgh. So a lot of field trips, obviously, Scotland being quite a wet, wet place, it's mm. quite a mossy, mossy place, especially the west coast of Scotland. It's um, oceanic climate, so it's wet, moist, humid very humid. It's a bit like here during the uh, rainy season. Mm-hmm. It's very green, very lush. So yeah, during my during my um, my, my studies, I I was I was taken to field trips um, in a, in the highlands in the coast uh, of Scotland. So that's why I got to know like all the diversity of plants and really mosses, moss, mossy plants because mosses are not just mo- mosses. It's um, bryophytes, a group of bryophytes. It includes mosses, liverworts, and hornworts. And like, you know, I could talk about this for many hours, but I'm not going to bore anyone here. But just to be technical, <laughs> um, mosses is just one group of bryophytes, which is the earliest group of plants after the algae. Um, and there are um, extremely sensitive plants, but they're, they're ancient. They're like um, about 500 million years. So after the algae, the mosses, liverworts, mossy plants, I call them here, just to be simple, um, they're the first land plants. They colonized earth. Um, and how does how does one date plants in that way? Like, okay. how does one date plants or, or know, for example, that, that mosses are the oldest plants? Um, because genetically, you can you can look at the genes, you know. Mm. So so and also we have we have um, fossil record. Mm-hmm. So we have some we have some spores. Mm-hmm. So you can look so you can look at, um, for example, um, their spores deposits. I think they were from Patagonia, I believe, Chile, the oldest ones, and they're 500 million years, so you can date them. 
um, because they were they were very simple plants. They didn't have vascular systems. They didn't have like woody tissue. Um, we are just relying on what we have in the fossil record. So mostly we look at the the fossil deposits. Um, obviously, they could have existed uh, earlier. We just don't have record. Mm-hmm. And we also look at the complexity of the gene of the genes as well. But mostly the fossil record it um, shows us the mossy plants. Um, so that's interesting. The the mossy plants are more genetically complex. They are. They, I mean, they're very cl- they're closer related to the algae. Uh-huh. So you, well, even you, when you build a tree of life, you can look at the ancestors of plants, which are the green algae, and then the first land plants that branch off from the tree of life are the mossy plants, are liverworts, hornworts, and mosses. Hmm. Okay, so they're just uh, liverworts. Um, I, I refuse to call them mosses because I work on them in the cloud forest, and most of the mossy plants in the cloud forest are actually liverworts, not mosses. Hmm. But people refer to them as mosses because that's what they know. So I'm just going to refer them as mossy, mm-hmm. mossy plants or mosses. But my sort of deep affection is towards the liverworts because this is the group of plants that um, dominate um, canopies and just the entire landscape in um, moist habitat. Like the Pacific Northwest in the US, for example, is very mossy. And the cloud forests here. And here's not so much. Now in the rainy season, you can, when you walk around, you can see like green patches of, of little plants and you, that's kind of carpets, cushions of them, and these are mosses mostly. Liverworts so, are not so common here; they're uh, most common in the cloud forest. <laughs> so the idea is that the algae started in the ocean, and then eventually they they yeah. begin to spread to land and and turn into to moss, and then eventually into other plants. Yeah. So you get you get um, algae you get in the ocean, but also in freshwater. Mm-hmm. So the ancestors, close ancestors of um, of land plants and first being the mossy plants, is green algae from freshwater, mm. the Cariaceae. Okay, Cara is the closest ancestor, is a sister group of a lineage of, of the land plants. And so we have algae growing on land, on, uh, in freshwater, and also in oceans. In oceans, most commonly known as the seaweeds. Okay. Mm-hmm. But you also have freshwater algae. And some of them, some of the freshwater algae look like plants. If you, if you saw a Cara plant, you wouldn't think it's a it's alga, okay? It looks like a just like a plant, because of the reproductive system and the structure, physiology, and the molecular composition, uh, they are they are classified as algae. They're not mm-hmm. plants. They are plants, but they're photosynthesized, but they're not land plants. Mm-hmm. So I distinguish between land plants and cotton plants, and everything that's not land plant. It's purely aquatic. Uh, we call al- algae. Okay. <laughs> and very, very nutritious too, right? Yes, so, so algae, yes, are very nutritious. And they're being like, now um, looked into for biofuels, so alternative fuels. Yeah, so, so, so algae, algae as, a, as a group, green algae, because we've got green, brown, red, <laughs> golden algae, diatoms. Mm-hmm. So, so that's not my, I'm not going to talk about much because it's not my, my area of, of speciality. I've learned about it, I taught about it a little bit in university, but um, I'm, Focused mostly on the first group, the oldest group of land plants being um, being the bryoph- bryophytes, called bryophytes, uh, mosses, liverworts, and hornworts. And why they were so interesting is because they're actually sensitive. They're sensitive to environment. Most people are familiar with lichens, um, which is a symbiotic relationship between an alga, a green alga, and a fungus, um, or cyanobacteria and a and a fungus which are used for uh, to test quality of air, for example. Okay? They're indicators for pollution. 
Now you can use bryophytes, mosses, liverworts, in the same way as indicators for climate. So that was my, 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 my research area here, coming to Peru, using these sensitive uh, plants um, to study um, cloud forests. Um, because cloud forests are very sensitive and unique and very threatened ecosystems. So I used plants as indicators to study, um, basically to get an idea, um, to get baseline data for cloud forests, for the health of cloud forests and understand the extent of out cloud forests and so forth. It's a, it's, it's a big subject. So I, I, I want to spend the whole, the whole session talking about, <laughs> talking about my research of like, I don't know, 13 years, on and off, on and off research. Yeah, and that's the main reason why I'm here. <laughs> the, the interest for the mossy plants that that was the primary thing, and then you got interested in climate change, or there was. There so that, was that, that's that's the um, using the mossy plants as indicators for climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, just to put in context, um, cloud forests um, being one of the most um, diverse habitats on Earth, they comprise only about about one um, percent of all forests um, on Earth. And they're extremely species-rich. Um, they have they have animals and plants, which only only occur in these habitats. And cloud forests are one of the most threatened habitats. So when with global warming, climate change, um, we're gonna be losing those ecosystems. And there is a lot of research that has been done in uh, Monteverde, in Costa Rica. Um, and they're already seeing, have seen the last few decades, 20, 30 years of research, the cloud base have already moved upslope and um, there's many uh, parts of the, of the very unique ecosystem already drying out. So why is it important? Uh, because the cloud forests are wet all throughout the year. As you know from your experience living here, we're now in a, coming to the end of the rainy season. It rains a lot, it's green right now. But if you um, walk through the Sacred Valley in August, September, it's extremely brown and dry, okay? Because normally, that was before like, climate change became a, a big issue. Um, we had about six months of rain and six months of um, a dry period. And over the last decades, since I've, I've lived and worked in Peru, I've already noticed the, the patterns changing. So we have a lot more rain now in the, in the dry season and we have periods of drought in the wet season which, mm. which is really bad news for the ecosystem um, so now the cloud forest in, in comparison is wet throughout the year so it's in 12 months of the year it's wet and moist and humid so plants are extremely reliant and dependent on, on moisture of con- continuous moisture supply like mosses uh, liverworts they're uh, able to survive and thrive. So, have you been to Cloud Forest? Mm-hmm. I, I've been to Monteverde. You've been to Monteverde, yeah. okay. Yeah. So, Peru has one of the most magical, most beautiful cloud forests on Earth. I've seen some in Africa, and I've seen some in Southeast Asia. And I've not been to Monteverde, but um, I've kind of biased because I've spent a lot of time in the cloud forest here in, in Peru, in Kosnipata, um, Manu National Park, mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the mountain part, um, around 3,600 meters, 3,000 up to um, 1,500. Um, 
you, you go down the Manu Road, that's most known for, for birds, uh, waters. It's a very it's a very beautiful landscape. It's primary, pretty much undisturbed forest. So this forest is very unique and, and magical. It's when you when you walk through the forest, you are surrounded by by uh, carpets of, of mossy plants on the ground, on the trees, in the canopies, hanging from branches. And so okay, so most people don't notice those green plants because um, another my subject would be like plant blindness. We don't we don't see those patches of green stuff. But what people see is is orchids, they see bromeliads, they see beautiful flowers, and they notice the birds. However, all the other parts of the ecosystem that we we notice because they're colourful, or because they move, or because they make a sound, and they rely on the entire ecosystem functioning, of the health of the ecosystem. So now um, I've mainly specialised in climate change research, but um, I'm really interested in the in the health and the well-being of the entire ecosystem. And um, mossy plants are very important for the health and the well-being of the ecosystem. And without those plants, now... They, they capture moisture, they hold the moisture like sponges, they provide substrate for um, orchids, for very um, for nesting for the birds, they capture nutrients, they very importantly return water that they capture from the air when, when the clouds come in, they return the water into the ground and then the water runs off down into the lowland communities and provides um, healthy water resources. So it's a reservoir for water. Nutrients. The 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 mm, the soil in the clouds is very nutrient rich, and um, very moist and nutrient rich. So, uh, coming back to climate change, um, with um, heating and drying climate, and also very extreme um, weather events, um, we're gonna ha- we're gonna experience a drying, um, heating and drying drying. So that means the cloud forest, which the name suggests, it's. Um, it's characterized by, by cloud immersion, that is a um, condensation of warm and moist air at vegetation level. Um, here in Peru, which I know best, it's between, I'd say, between 1,800 meters and about 3,400, 500 meters, just uh, um, a tree line. So this belt of clouds, which occurs most days during the dry end, especially during the dry season especially, um, this belt of clouds, which occurs daily, almost daily, um, is going to be reduced. So now if this happens over prolonged periods, you're going to experience a drying of the habitat. That means um, the animals and the plants that rely on this moist ecosystem will suffer. So now, um, thinking about the Andean bear, thinking about the birds that people come to see in Kashnipata or in Manu, you know, they can pack the little backpacks and head uphill to the areas which are still moist and wet. But if you think about plants, plants don't migrate very fast. You know, if you think about the ice ages, um, which really changed the patterns of, of floras across the globe, especially in Europe, um, with rapid changes, plants cannot migrate to their habitat that is more optimal for, the, for their um, requirements. So we're looking at losing really uh, important rare plant species um, in those in this in this um, very unique 
um, cloud forest ecosystem. So that's been my, my research. And so people, and I'm not going to argue, I'm not going to climate change and argue that it's true or not true. Um, basically, we need baseline, baseline data to argue it's happening, it's not happening. Um, as many people skeptic skeptics that still argue it's not happening, uh, it is happening in my view. And then in the last 13, 14 years of climate research only, I have noticed um, really quite drastic patterns. But what we really need is baseline data. So now I have data from 14 years and I can say 14 years ago my research shows that the cloud base in Koshnipata was at 1,750 meters. If I go back now to the same research I did then, and I collect the plants and do the same um, chemical analysis research, I get, I get data that will show me, oh, the cloud base is still there, or it has moved upslope. Then I can say to the skeptics, climate change is really happening because cloud base is uh, moving upslope and we are losing um, habitat. There's, there's parts of the ecosystems drying out. And so that's basically, in a nutshell, <laughs> long answer given, um, what my research was about to collect baseline, baseline data, to convince the skeptics. However, the research, I don't know if you're familiar with academic research, it's very slow, okay, and the changes that we're experiencing are rapid. So I've been kind of one foot in, one foot out, you know, um, also with my own personal frustration with the way academia works. So I've been very passionate about this work. I, I love like climbing trees, collecting the plants, doing the work, you know, collecting the data. But um, what has frustrated me is like you have to sit down for a lot of the time, crunch numbers and publish papers. So so that's that bit is really what sort of um, invited me to not so be active in, in academia anymore. So yes, I'm still a little bit involved with the project um, here, with the climate, climate change and especially cloud forest conservation and cloud forest hydrology, the water cycle. I'm still involved, that's why I'm here. Um, but I don't hold a position in academia. I, don't, I just work as a freelance researcher. And on the side, um, the permaculture, teach yoga <laughs> and just live, <laughs> you know. So... So I think my mission here is really to make people aware, you know, of of the ecosystems that and of the nature around us. Um, in the Sacred Valley, which is very dry habitat, uh, it's it's lovely now because it feels like almost like some days it feels like the cloud forest, and I feel very much at home. But it come come dry season, I I want to like go back to the cloud forest and be with the mossy plants and you know. The clouds moving in and out through the landscape and beautiful birds and diversity. So just to put some numbers into into context, one percent of landscape of of, of forest um, we would describe as cloud forest, cloudy, mossy, you know, um, very humid, um, mostly in in tropical places. Sometimes in north in temperate climates, south te north temperate climates like Pacific Northwest. Um, in New Zealand, has also cloud forests, temperate cloud forests. So we've got tropical and temperate. So about twenty percent of of species diversity um, are um, in cloud found in cloud forests. 
So we have a very dis disproportionate number of species that rely on this very unique ecosystem in, compares, in comparison to the very small area. So you probably agree with me, if, you, if this area gets reduced because of global change, we are looking at losing a very big um, number of species. And I'm not talking just plants, because I'm mostly focused on plants, because, but they are primary producers. So if we lose plants, we also use animal, lose animals. Um, so I'd like to look at the, whole, the bigger picture. Um, I'd like to look at ecosystem, rather than saving the tiger or saving the orchid. You know? So, so my, in my mind, in my view, and that's also been um, also personal development, looking at, at, at bigger pictures, at the connections, at the ecosystem, at um, then the beautiful network of, network of nature that Darwin described. You know? If you remove one part of the ecosystem, another part will suffer. So, so that, that is sort of my, my passion, <laughs> I, would, I would say. And jungles. And I have worked in Amazon jungles. You, you lived in jungle, okay. So mm -hmm. I've, I've worked and lived in Amazon jungle. Not recently, that's now quite a long time ago, like more than 10 years ago. Climbed big trees there, you know, experienced monkeys jumping around, just checking me out what I'm doing, you know. Because I compared the diversity that you find in canopies at different elevations and just really just really getting a, a bigger picture an idea um, like to compare the diversity that we have in a cloud forest in comparison to the Amazon forest it's a very very different ecosystem you know very different diversity and same idea um, ecosystem functioning is at the forefront and focusing on biodiversity habitat um, health and well-being and so forth. Yeah. Anyway, that was a very long answer. <laughs> no, that's great. You you mentioned so in the cloud forest, one of the one of the ways is 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 looking at the the expansion of the plants moving up the mountain. But you also mentioned this idea of, of chemical analysis. What is the how do you measure something chemically to see that there's change in that? Yeah, that's very technical. <laughs> so most people, when I mention them, my, my, my research has been done on isotopes. and um, So I use iso stable isotopes, um, which was carbon-13. Most people are familiar with carbon-14 um, for, um, for dating, um, which is a radio radioactive um, isotope. I use carbon-13, which is stable, oxygen-18, and deuterium um, these are stable isotopes, they, are, they occur in nature, and we can use them as traces. So the way photosynthesis works, and I'm not going to detail, basically I can, I can look, I can take a plant, I can analyze the tissue of the plant, um, basically cellulose in the plant, and um, do a very simple analysis. Um, and I can get a ratio of the, the heavy to light um, to light isotopes. And by looking at the numbers, I can then conclude in what sort of climate the plant has lived, has, has, has um, photosynthesized. And that um, system I, I used um, pretty much works only for, for bryophytes because of their simple physiology. You can't do that same simple analysis with um, flowering plants, for example, because they have stomata in just the, the, the calculations and everything is much more complex. Mm. Um, bryophytes, mossy plants, are simple plants, very simple physiology, 
and because of their simplicity, but also their uh, unique uh, sensitivity to moisture gradients, I can use the isotopes. Okay, this is very very technical, mm. no, that's great. <laughs> um, but. Basically, I do this analysis, I take some samples, dry them, I, I measure them with like 0.1 milligram capsules and I send them off to a laboratory for research and they give me just, a, just numbers and I can plot them. And then I can tell you the plant, this plant during a particular period. So I can look at the whole lifetime of a plant, I can look at the season and then I can conclude in what sort of climatic conditions the plant has lived so that was yeah, the, the, the basis, the kind of the foundation of my research. So I have that data um, for those four years or three, four years I've worked in Peru on my research. And I continue collecting plants. So maybe in 10, 20 years I'm going to do the same study. And then I can, you know, I could, I could show, hey, the cloud forest is changing. The boundary that I, um, that I defined using, using these um, tools of isotopes and bryophytes um, is is shifting, you know. Now, as I said before, it's it's slow process because we're collecting this data, we are doing analysis, writing the papers, you know. And while we're doing all this, um, patterns are changing. So, so out of this frustration of you know how how slow things are progressing, um, I I'm not so much involved in in research anymore. I'm just still involved a little bit now um, with some with a project in Kosnipata. I run a few experiments and still continue using plants as indicators for, for climate change. Um, but just sort of pretty much as a hobby. <laughs> so I'm, a, I'm like a hobby scientist now. And I'm here because I, I guess I specialized in cloud forests and I specialized in isotope the, con the combination of isotope work, isotope analysis and um, bryophyte um, diversity, accumulation, biomass, abundance, and their physiology. This combination is very unique, and I was fortunate enough. I had a, a very a special eccentric supervisor in the UK who inspired me to do this work, and so I, that's how I got into it. And I already was before interested in, in mossy plants through my, uh, my master's uh, program where I studied the whole diversity of plants. And I really, I really got intrigued by mossy plants. They are little, they are overlooked, and you just have to like, you know, sit with a microscope and just look down the microscope and then observe. Like, and there's such a beauty at a microscopic level. So I totally fell in love with that um, unique kind of concealed, hidden world. And then when I discovered the canopy, I was like, wow. So I'm seeing things most people don't see. So you really have to spend time looking at a microscope to appreciate the beauty of the mossy world or you use a magnifier. And to really appreciate the diversity of the canopy, you have to climb trees. So most of the, most of the diversity is in the canopy. <laughs> mm. And I mean, when I tell people I, I climb trees and then most people are like, oh, it's like the ayahuasca vine that climbs trees. Yes, probably I have climbed an ayahuasca, <laughs> ayahuasca liana, because it's a climber. And when I'm in the jungle in Amazon, uh, I mean, if you've walked through the Amazon forest, you see, you look up and you see all those like life forms. You have bromeliads, you have stuff hanging off the branches, you have ferns, you have, 
all sorts of diversity. And you have those plants that they root in the ground and climb up the plant, uh, the tree. One of them is probably now um, a very popular and well-known ayahuasca vine, which probably I've climbed. Because, you know, when I put my ropes in a tree, it's very difficult just to, to put them in a, on a branch. Uh, so the diversity of plants, especially in the, in the, in the Amazon forest, is, is, is vast. Um, diversity is different between the cloud forest and the Amazon forest, and different, different types of plants, but uh, mostly the diversity is confined to the canopy, which we mostly don't see. So that's another, another one of my uh, passions, I would say, canopy, canopy research, which I don't do enough anymore because I'm, I'm stuck in a secret valley. <laughs> and what, what defines a, a cloud forest exactly? Because as you said, it's a very small percentage of, of, yeah. of land. Yeah, so um, it, cloud forest is, is typically, um, it's a tropical, subtropical or a temperate forest which um, experiences a, um, a, um, a consistent immersion of clouds at the vegetation level. So you get this um, the cloud formation, condensation of moist air, and those clouds move through the canopies, through, through the forest, and then get intercepted by the vegetation. So it has, it, here, you can get an idea when clouds, clouds form during the rainy season. You can look up to Peter's Sirai, you can see the clouds. So this you see uh, on a daily basis in a cloud forest at a certain elevation. So it occurs typically um, around, like I mean here in Cochipata it's around 1500 meters up to 3536 until um, the clouds dis get dispersed by the wind above the tree line. Um, so those moist air will rise up. So as typically, now, now I'm explaining climate stuff, in, um, 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 which I'm not so good at, <laughs> actually. Uh, basically, moist, the moist air rises up, and as it reaches um, higher altitudes, uh, those droplets condense, and we can see them as droplets. So moist air can hold a lot of water, and as it cools down, it, uh, it, it condenses. And it forms clouds. And we see it as sort of, yeah, sort of as moving, moving clouds, fog, mist. We see it moving through the vegetation. And then the rise up, 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 up. And so normally in the cloud first in the morning, there is a blue sky, you know, especially in the dry season, blue sky, and brilliant sunshine. Come midday and you're engulfed by, by mist. And, and this mist is what also provi provides the water source for the ecosystem. And what, so if it's a, it's a specific range of elevation. Yeah, it's a specific, depends where you are on earth. Right. But what, what, so then what separates anywhere in the world being at that particular elevation, but it's not necessarily a cloud forest? You need, you need moisture. You need, mm. like um, here, um, so I'm talking more, more about this habitat here because I'm familiar with it. Um, here the moisture comes from the Amazon forest, um, partly from the Atlantic Ocean. So moist clouds bring mo uh, the clouds bring moisture and the rain out and and saturate the ecosystem of the of the Amazon. You have a lot of vegeta vegetation. Now uh, plants uh, transpire, 
So they give the take up water from the soil and they give water into the into the uh, into the atmosphere. When you when you've lived in the Amazon, you probably notice it's very humid. You do a few steps, you sweat. It's high humidity. There's a lot of moisture in the air. Now you can only get cloud formation when you when you have um, the, when the air is laden with with moisture. Now when that air is is saturated with with, with moisture with water and it moves to a zone of, 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 of lower temperature, that moisture condenses and it forms those droplets, mist, cloud. So you have to, so it happens also in California, redwoods, okay? California experiences this mist. And the Pacific Northwest will experience it, Scotland experiences it. It's only places where you get high, high moisture occurrence. Here in the Sacred Valley, it's typically, we've moved away from the moist, so, so, uh, eastern slope of the Andes, we moved here into kind of a, a tropical central um, um, central Andes, and um, only experience moisture during the rainy season because there's a lot of rain, but it only also experiences moisture because of vegetation. If we had less vegetation here, we'd be a lot drier. So vegetation, vegetation holds the moisture, and because the plants take up the water from the soil, they transpire the moisture into the air, and then the air gets saturated. Yeah? Mm. So the Amazon forest is a very important source um, for, for moisture, for, 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 for water. And that, that's also the, the big talk about why the Amazon forest is so important. It's not just because of diversity, um, it's, a, it's an important depository of all you know, animals, plants, uh, biodiversity, but it also, and, and, and clean air, but for the water cycle, okay? We, um, our existence on this planet is, is entirely reliant on the sun, <laughs> the earth, and the water, okay? So we are very dependent on water. And clean water resources are limited. So if you remove um, forests, if you remove um, vegetation covers, you disturb the hydrology of the, of the place. And, and we are in big trouble as humans and, yeah... Um, entire ecosystem is disturbed. So why um, Koshnipata is such a unique cloud forest ecosystem? Because those, those, those moist air comes from the Amazon and rises up and when it, as it meets the eastern slope of the, of the Andes um, this moisture condenses from droplets, mist and then this moist cool air engulfs the forest and provides water for um, air plants, plants that live on in the canopy. They are disconnected from the soil, and we're talking orchids, bromeliads, ferns, mossy plants. Okay, and in this now again to emphasize the mossy plants, they they if you sat down on a bit of moss on the ground and you got a <laughs> wet butt, you know what I'm talking about. Um, mossy plants work like sponges. So uh, they don't have roots, and they entirely take up their moisture requirements uh, from the air, mm. and then they store the moisture. So if you took um, a cushion of moss, you squeezed it, you could collect some water. <laughs> if you're camping somewhere and you run out of water, you could squeeze some moss and you can just drink that water. Mm. <laughs> so and then obviously they they provide habitat for 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 for, uh, for invertebrates. You know, it's. Within the mossy um, cushion, there's like another ecosystem, like a micro-ecosystem. Okay? 
So, yeah, so my, my main focus has been on, on this unique and threatened, highly threatened uh, ecosystem types, which, uh, yeah, which, which, are, which are very species-rich. Mm-hmm. And across the globe, um, generally around um, the equator, so we are very close, very close to the equator here. So north-south of the equator, you have mostly cloud forests, but then you have them in certain areas like Pacific Northwest, Scotland, west of Ireland a little bit. And you, ha- you get them in the temperate climates like in, uh, in New Zealand. You know? So there's very few places on Earth that have those e- um, um, these ecosystems because the climatic conditions are uh, vital. They're key. So, <laughs> so we we working we working on uh, just gaining consciousness and awareness of of very very specialized uh, floras and faunas, you know. And is the danger because with with the cloud forest because it is at a certain elevation, obviously it can go up, but I I, I would imagine there's a limit. So yeah. I guess at a certain point there's mm-hmm. there's no more room to expand upwards. Yeah, yeah, it's a good question actually. In in Costa Rica, people noticed that the clouds moved upslope, upslope because the, the the condensation won't happen in the, in a low elevation. It has to have a certain temperature um, between ten degrees and fifteen twenty degrees. Uh, cloud forest, they're kind of cool, moist. Um, so now the clim- climate um, warms, you don't get this condensation anymore, you don't get the mist formation. Um, so in Costa Rica, they, they've been measuring that the clouds now form at a higher elevation. So now on smaller mountains, um, the formation of, this, of, the, of, the, of the clouds just happens at, on the peaks. You know? And then very small, pe- very small mountains, the clouds just don't form at all. You, the cloud force disappears because there's no longer... Um, cloud immersion that occurs. Um, that's Costa Rica, small mountains. About Peru, people say, oh, the Andes are very, very tall mountains, and the clouds will not just disappear. Um, yeah, they, they will probably not disappear entirely, I don't know, but the belt, the range will, will be reduced. So, in, so my, my main um, outcome of my work was to define where the boundaries, which is not like a, it's not a line, it's not like a bound, it's not like a, a boundary between one country and another country. It's an invisible line, uh, which you can define using isotopes, using bright, using the mossy plants, and you can also observe it. You can see where the where the boundary is. Literally, when you when you walk through a forest, you can see uh, the vegetation is changing. So the the boundary that I defined was around one thousand eight hundred meters elevation in Kosnipata starting and then the upper boundary was around uh, 3,400 meters because when you come to 3,600 meters in the transect that I did in the, the slope that I used there there was no more forest there was just uh, grassland okay so up to about three thicks you know you um, you get cloud forest um, vegetation in Koshnipata this is the eastern slope of the Andes when you when you go this way towards the east and then you suddenly you you lose all those eucalyptus and you lose all like the pine trees and suddenly you you really notice like a change of vegetation to like a natural vegetation and much more diversity and then with the change of of plants you will notice really 
an, an amazing diversity of birds. And that what Cochinpata is most famous for, it's its bird diversity. It's very, very unique. So people come from all over the world um, to go bird watching. So I've been very fortunate to climb trees, to sit in canopies and be visited by f- mixed flocks of very colorful birds. I have no idea what they are. <laughs> I just admire them. And they just come and sort of check me out and then move on, you know. Uh, because of the diversity of food, food sources for those birds. So um, in the story of conservation climate change, uh, we're looking at the ecosystem. So we're providing food source for all the animals as part of the ecosystem. And plants um, form a very important component in that, in that story of well-being of the ecosystem. And then to tie it back with ourselves, our well-being ties in directly with ecosystem well-being and nature. So, so yes, yeah, so I'm a, I'm a uh, canopy biologist, a bit of hobby climate scientist, <laughs> not very active, but I'm, yeah, I, I try to look at the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> and is this is this a field that's expanding this kind of work of, of of studying plants with climate change, or is it still kind of a niche field? Um, in the last um, in the last fifteen years or so, I've been sort of. I mean, I've I've I've, I've sort of been aware of climate research in the last more, more than twenty years during my studies, and I would say it has been expanding until probably last year when the world panicked because <laughs> of the pandemic. And that's, uh, I've, I've not really kept uh, up to date with, with the recent research uh, papers and, and, and um, overwhelming amount of, of news. But my sense is that um, because of, of the panic that's happening on, on a global level about human health, we have sort of forgotten, really. People have forgotten or put, pushed aside the worries about global change um, in terms of um, ecosystem biodiversity loss and climate change, which is really part of the same story, you know. But, yeah, um, <laughs> I, I think the way I see it is, um, for me, has been for, has been a long-term question to decide where will I work, will I um, just forget the humans and just try to save the plants and the ecosystem, work as an activist, work as a climate researcher and try to crunch more numbers, try to, you know, maybe publish more, you know, create more awareness, I don't, I don't know, save those ecosystems, you know, work for Work work for Mother Nature, or will I go and work with people? Um, I haven't got the answer. To be honest, I'm still working on working out the answer. I think we have to do a little. I maybe have to do a bit of, a bit of both. But basically, what I've noticed in 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 my work on my travels, working in Africa and Asia, because I've worked long term also in in India and Southeast Asia and here in Peru, what I've noticed is that. Um, I can do a lot of ranting and preaching about what's wrong with the world, um, how we're losing ecosystems, how we are, um, how the world's burning, and how we're going down. You know, I can do, I can talk about that, and I'm sure people don't want to hear about that, so I'm not going to talk about it. 
because it's very frustrating and it puts puts us in a place of of almost inactivity. Um, you know, there's enough depressed people in the world already. I don't don't think they need to hear from me that uh, we are, the world is in trouble. Okay, so. So from what direction will I tackle the problem of, of the global problem that we have is, and this is where your work comes in, I think, is, is working on people's consciousness. You know, when people start connecting with themselves and they start caring about themselves and then they connect, get connect, they find a connection back to nature. Because uh, in my observation, and that's just as my personal observation, not my work. So, um, us as humans have become very disconnected from nature, um, from source, and from uh, from Mother Earth, from from all that surrounds us, that that nurtures us, and we have because because we have um, lost the, the connection, we have also lost the. Um, in some way, the care for it, okay, and and I think the basis, the most important part, in it is that we have stopped connecting to ourselves as well. So I don't know which is a bit of a chicken egg situation. <laughs> I don't know if this connection from nature happened first or this connection from from us as humans, um, our human nature. But basically, I think what has to happen now in parallel with all like the, the panic that's happening on a global level, is we have to start caring for ourselves and for nature, reconnect to nature and, and see the healing power that nature has. And every step that we do, every action, we have to not just think, I have to heal as human, but what, what is my action? Uh, what, what does it, how does it impact and the bigger picture, how does it impact Mother Earth? How does it impact the ecosystem? You know, how does it impact the air, the water, uh, all those bugs, you know, all the birds, <laughs> everything. Um, so I think we have to go back to reconnecting, interconnectedness and interdependency um, within this really uh, magical ecosystem that we are part of, you know. So so I'm, I'm kind of in, in between two worlds, um, you know, trying to teach a bit of yoga now and working in permaculture, you know, and maybe starting to teach courses again, trying to make people aware of plants, sort of work really um, against the, the, global, the global pandemic on plant blindness, you know. People are not aware of plants. And uh, so I don't know if I'm going to, like, we focus more on that, um, but I feel that both, you know, being aware of like what's going on globally on an ecosystem level, but as well as um, connecting human back to being human and each other, you know, and just valuing and honoring <laughs> Mother Earth, I think is very, very important. <laughs> so I think that's that's my learning right now here <laughs> in the Sacred Valley while I'm uh, not doing any research right now, <laughs> uh, sort of just observing what's going on <laughs> around me. Yeah, I mean, that seems like a really good point, and it's, it, it's one of these, uh, I think, kind of paradoxical things, because we, we say things like we're removed from nature, which I think is very true, 
and yet at the same time we are part of, of nature mm-hmm. and so but you mentioned this idea of, of symbiosis which i think is is a really important point which I think, for example, you know, materially, we're probably better off than we've ever been mm-hmm. in human history. And yet, that's a good thing. And yet, at the same time, you know, I think a lot of societies, we look at, we look at evolution as a mm-hmm. linear trajectory. And, and, and many traditional cultures look at it as, as cyclical. Mm-hmm. And kind of this idea that, that, you know, if we keep getting material and materially more advanced, that that's better and better and better, but that that also obviously comes as a cost. Like everything, there, there's a balance, there, there's a harmony between things. So, but it seems like we're also getting to a point where we're maybe realizing as individuals or societies that health doesn't necessarily move in that linear direction, that if we're not taking care of nature, mm-hmm. if nature is suffering, mm-hmm. then we're suffering, we're suffering yeah. because, <laughs> yeah. I mean, think of all of the ailments that we're dealing with, things yeah. like depression and anxieties and fears yeah. and uh, many people without access to clean water mm-hmm. or clean food, food that has chemicals in it mm-hmm. and processed foods and mm-hmm. all of these things serve a purpose, but you can't take anything to an extreme yeah. or something will rise as a counter to that. So that seems like a really important point, which you're bringing up, which is that these things aren't inherently different. Like the health mm-hmm. of humanity is is completely interdependent <laughs> on the health of nature. It is. It's, it's yeah, directly dependent. And thank you for bringing up a very important point of balance because we have to... We have to go back somehow. We have to try to come back to point of balance um, in nature. Or I, I learned a lot. Of my my I think my main guru, my main teacher, has been so far nature. And actually, I remember my supervisor laughed about me when I went to India after my PhD. And he was like, "Do you go to India to find your guru?" You know, kind of making fun of me. And I and I I did. You know, and I found my guru, and it was Mother Earth. I started, um, I started gardening, growing vegetables in a permaculture, beautiful permaculture community. And, and I realized I had so much to learn from Mother Earth after I had studied, you know, I had done three degrees, you know, I had become a doctor, I had done my postdoc, I could have become a professor. But no, I had to go, I had to, go to Earth and spend six months barefoot walking on the earth of Tamil Nadu, southern India. And... Just very interesting looking, looking, looking down, uh, look, being judged by, by, you know, by people, you know, just how, how I lived. But I learned so much just um, growing vegetables and connecting to nature. So I did find my guru then. And then um, I reconnected back to the learning I received from the forests. So forest ecosystems have been for me like magical magical teachers, you know, the trees, the plants, the you know, animals as well, the whole ecosystem. And now come back to your comment about balance, um, a healthy forest, a healthy ecosystem, uh, as in it's, it's, um, it can be described in a point of equilibrium, ecological balance. It's self-sustainable. And then I remember one comment someone made to me, it's like, you know, we, we learn that competition is something important in, in evolution, like Darwin talked about it, but actually cooperation within ecosystem is a much more important um, 
and much important, much important mechanism, strategy. So it is cooperation. And I think we have a lot to learn from the way ecosystems, especially mature forests, mature like um, in a succession sort of progress, um, in a forest is is it's it's a very stable ecosystem, and we can we can learn a lot from that how um, animals and plants interact within that within that balance equilibrium. So coming back to another comment that you made about resources. So yes, we've we've evolved a lot as humanity. I'm not sure if we have evolved. I question it sometimes. We are depleting resources, you know, and uh, in the last, I don't know, a few, 20, 30 years, I've read somewhere that we've, we've increased consumption by 80% in the last 30 years of resources. Now, we're talking about resources, some of them, and we, we can't just replace them, you know, just easily because they, they've built over, over millennia, over, you know, the history of, of, of this earth. And we can't just go back. <laughs> so we have to really start thinking in a more sustainable way. And in that context, I think we need to, we need to go away from this um, human-centered thinking, you know, anthropocentric view that redrives our society. It's not a healthy attitude, you know. And I'm like, I've... So without criticism to all you listeners or anyone who's interested in the plant medicine world. Um, I'm also very interested in it. And I just want to make one little comment, just some food for thought, because I have worked on medicine plants and I've researched experience and all that. Um, when we start thinking that Mother Earth provides for us, for our healing, and we don't question our impact on Mother Earth, when we start collecting, over-collecting, medicinal plants. So I'm not just talking about visionary plants, I'm talking I'm talking any medicinal plants. Because yeah, it's it's good to heal ourselves with, with herbs or with visionary plants, you know, or mushrooms. And there is a big depository of 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 medicines out there in those forests, in those ecosystems. Um, but we have to see about balance. So we cannot just take for us because we need to heal. Uh, because we may maybe heal, maybe to an extent, but we, at the same time, we deplete the resources of, of Earth. And so I think we need to, we need to question like, um, the way we live and where we source our medicines from and, and how much and how we're giving back to Mother Earth or we're taking. Um, because our, as you said, our health our well-being depends on the health and well-being of this earth. And we are part of this ecosystem. So I am I'm quite, I, I have a quite activist attitudes at heart, and I would like to be more of an activist. But I, I really, I, I, I don't want to go to the extreme, go like, okay, let's humans die and save Mother Earth. Mother Earth can look after herself, you know. And... But we have responsibility in this lifetime where we, we're sharing this human experience. And, um, and many of us have children. So we have responsibility to leave this earth and this home um, 
to the children. You know, I don't have children, I have nieces. And I'm concerned that, you know, when, when they are, you know, in 20 years' time, they won't go be able to go snorkeling, diving, and see the magical world of the ocean that I have experienced. For me, the canopy and, and the, the ocean are the most magical places on Earth, you know. When I go, when I go diving or free diving in, in the tropical seas of Asia, um, I feel like, wow, we are so fortunate to be here. We are so lucky to experience that. But then I turn the corner, I see the bleached corals, and I see the vastness of um, destroyed and dying oceans. And I'm like, that's not okay, you know. That's not okay for us to, to live life, just to take, you know, take more fish out of the ocean, take more plants out of the forest, so or deplete the soil or pollute the water. So there is... You know, I just want to put it out there. I don't want to preach. I'm already probably <laughs> preaching enough. Um, I, and, you know, I want to look at it in a, in a positive way. That this now uh, is a point of awakening where we need to start looking at our actions, the way we think, the way we, the way we want to move forward in life um, with awareness and responsibility and just act in a more sustainable way. So... You, maybe you want to ask me, what do you do for it? <laughs> Can I read your mind? It's like, what do you do? So I probably don't do enough. I'm sort of gathering momentum. I'm wondering what to do with my background in science. And I have a I have background in science, but also I've, you know, I've, I have a background in yoga. I've been teaching yoga, practicing yoga for a long, long time. And for me, um, observing, as a biologist, one thing I, I've been... I've been practicing a lot is observation. It, it's a, it's a, I think it's the most important tool that we get taught as a biologist to observe and then conclude and then take action. Okay, I'm very I'm very um, result orientated. I'm very looking for strategies, looking for solving problem. It's kind of my I guess it's what my mind wants to do. So I'm looking at the whole scene, I'm observing, I'm thinking, what can we do? What can I do? And it frustrates me a lot because sometimes I think, ah, oh, I don't know what to do. And I think a lot of us and feel that way, I think. Um, when we stop and just look and listen and, you know, look around, I think, uh, I feel this global frustration sort of arising that... Uh, yeah, there is fear, you know, and there is a sense of like there's big stuff happening, and we don't know, we don't know, and I I think first step is awareness for the people to notice like my actions, how will they impact the bigger picture, you know? It's like you've been working with master plans, visionary plans. A lot of people are tapping into those resources to heal their the patterns, to heal the traumas, you know. And I think to take more responsibility for themselves, you know. I think that's a very, very important um, a step to take. Um, now here I teach yoga. So with the practice of yoga, I try to make people more aware, you know. Connect them to their breath, to their body. <laughs> and so the next step would be, once they're connected to them, their own body, and they, they honor their bodies, they're aware, they may become more aware 
and and more honoring of of the world around us. Anyway, that's my hope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would do a big tangent now. <laughs> You, you, you mentioned this idea, which I find very interesting. You were saying when you were in academia, you, you felt kind of constricted. And, mm-hmm. and even this idea of like you were, you were going to India to find your, your guru. And, <laughs> and I think many people do in that way. Mm-hmm. And, and yet you, sa- you, you said you, you found that the greatest guru was nature. Mm-hmm. And it, it reminded me uh, a lot of this work that, that, that I'm talking about in the podcast. Uh, as you mentioned, these kind of visionary plants it seemed to me one of the fundamental bases of these plants, uh, like they, they spoke about in Greece, was this idea of gnosis. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. even you mentioned this plant ayahuasca. That's the Shipibo who I work with a lot. That's that's their name for ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. It's uni, and and I think probably the best way to translate that would be gnosis. Yes. And it's you know in Greece, I'm, I'm not an expert, but from <laughs> what I understand, there's there's actually two words for knowledge. There's gnosis, and then there's another word for knowledge. And the, 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 the other word for knowledge is, is it's a more common form of knowledge. Like, I know this is a computer, or I, I, I know your name is this, or I know this wood is this. But that's not gnosis, because that's not an experiential knowledge. And, you know, even, even like the culture you come from in, in Europe or where I come from in the U.S., I think that really the beauty of those, like the, the, the enlightenment that came from Europe, or even, you know, the, the founding of the U.S. was built on these enlightenment principles. And, and I think you look at a lot of, like, early European scientists or the, the founding fathers of America, and one thing they really seemed to, to hold to be very important, which was that nature was the teacher, nature mm-hmm. was the guru. Mm-hmm. And... It, it seems like, and it's not just in academia, because I, I don't want to demonize <laughs> academia, because it's done amazing things, but it does seem like, not just in academia, but a lot of the, the, the cultures we come from, there's this emphasis on that that form of knowledge, which is a knowing, mm-hmm. which is this is this and that's that, but there's not necessarily a wisdom there. Yeah. And it, it was something... This may be an example that, that triggers some people. <laughs> but I, I was vegetarian for a long time, for many years. And then when I went to the Amazon and I tried to do that, I realized I didn't feel good. And I didn't feel good because what I realized for myself, and I saw it with many people, is that's not what nature was providing in that climate. And so, you know, the idea of... of Again, someone has an idea, maybe being vegan is the correct way. And, and I think uh, I'm trying to bring this full circle, but you mentioned this idea of like responsibility and like mm-hmm. being overwhelmed and people don't know. And, and I think that that is a big problem. And, mm-hmm. But if we, if we hear something like, oh, like being vegan is the best way, mm-hmm. there may be truth to that, but is there wisdom behind that? Mm-hmm. Like, what is the principle? Like, why is that rather than just you can't eat meat or you can't mm-hmm. eat this, this, and this. Because, for example, in the Amazon, if I eat one fish, yeah. I've killed one life. Mm-hmm. But I've killed one life. <laughs> Whereas if I'm eating, you know, soya or something that's mm-hmm. being shipped in and clear-cutting the jungle and, and bringing fruits in and vegetables from Lima or something, mm-hmm. the cost of life for that yeah. is tremendous. Yeah. I mean... I don't know the calculations, but I would imagine if I thought about it, it would probably be tens of thousands of lives are somehow lost in that in that chain of of getting that thing to me. And so it seems like a you know a lot of that is that that wisdom and yeah. and so much of that, as you said, 
can be found in nature because nature does teach mm-hmm. us. It teaches us about things like time and entropy and cycles mm-hmm. and, and, and reciprocity. And as you mentioned, cooperation mm-hmm. and competition. There is competition, but there's also cooperation. Mm-hmm. And if we don't if we don't begin to learn those things, it seems like the inevitable conclusion is, okay, this is the right way, mm. and we just keep moving towards that, but we forget about all of the other things. And kind of like you mentioned in the cloud forest, it's like, okay, well, maybe that goes. Mm. And I think a lot of people would think, okay, well, that's just gone. But there's all of the chain reaction mm-hmm. things that come from that. And I think that's what's so hard for people to maybe understand is mm-hmm. like, what are all of those chain of events that follow that? Mm-hmm. And it, as you mentioned, you know, these things like awareness or, or, or looking to nature, these plants begin to offer us some sort of, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't want to be presumptuous, but maybe some degree of wisdom that allows us to maybe better make those choices. Oh, totally. Totally, no, no, that's, that's a great, that's a great synthesis, you just, <laughs> like, um, yeah, ex- experiential learning mm-hmm. actually has been one of the things I've, I've been involved in in India, um, teaching children from Krishnamurti schools, Krishnamurti is a, you know, educator and a very wise person, <laughs> um, recommend, recommend looking into him, Krishnamurti. So experiential education was, was really the forefront of our strategy where we try to teach um, children to come closer to nature. And yeah, plants, visionary plants especially, have the same effect. They make you feel you're part of it, you're connected. There's no separation, you know. And I think that's why they have such a huge impact on our psyche and um, impact um, in healing because, you know, you, I, I may tell you, you need to change this, or you might realize, oh, I have that habit, I have that addiction, I have, you know, I do this thing, I need to change it. Intellectually, completely makes sense, but until you experience it, you, you won't be able to change it, and I think this is where the power of visionary plants is. You experience, it's like in a dream, when you have a very profound dream, you wake up and you like experience something, and then actually it's very easy to change it. So for me, um, yoga is the same, same system. Um, when you practice yoga, meditation, you experience very deep states um, by using your breath, by observing your breath, by doing certain practices, by, by moving energies, you know, and you experience it. And by experiencing it over and over again, sometimes it just takes one experience. It depends on the person. Uh, and you can, you can change, you know. So... Ex- experiencing is connected to experimenting. So actually, science is ex- does experiments, and and a- a- experiencing is just an experiment. So when I teach yoga in my class, I tell my students, you experiment with this, and you will see for yourself if it works or it doesn't. I don't want to convince anyone that they have to do this practice or this meditation. Um, I've been doing it for a long time. It helped me through very difficult times, you know, being academic, having, you know, um, you know, having to focus, having, having to be, you know, straining my brain, you know. And so those practices really helped me. So now with full, um, you know, I'm completely convinced that this works for me. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't work for another person. But I just suggest, I just share, you try this. And see how it works for you. In the same way, med- uh, medicinal plants, master plants, visionary plants. Um, not for everyone, 
and certainly not without integration, as you know, you've worked in this. Um, so I would say in parallel, we have to, we have to find um, the roots to connect back with ourselves and with nature. And I remember someone said to me, in the visual plants just give you a bridge to connect with your own medicine. So I always invite people, like, you know, if you drink plant medicines, if you, do, if you ingest certain, certain potent um, substances, just be aware what is, what is your medicine that you need to connect with. Because ultimately, you don't want to be dependent on anything outside of yourself. You want to connect back with your medicine that is always with you. And, and I think for me, the, the deepest teachings, the biggest teachings I found was within nature, you know. And I have experienced nature spirits just being in forests, you know, climbing trees, connecting with the spirits of trees, you know, of plants around me, of animals. And there's so much magic out there that is already, that, that's, that's accessible to us. And, but we have to be aware of it. And most of the time we're asleep. We're not aware. And... So those visionary plants um, have that power to connect us back with us and nature. And ultimately, it's the same. We're just one. And only, I think, when we as humans connect with our, with our, with our own inner selves and with nature, we will be able to actually take care of Mother Earth better. So we can't separate, you know, people like all these activists, um, you know, trying to violently preserve places and, and, and all animals and not, um, not including the most important component, humans, you know. We are part of, of the system and we are an important part. We are powerful and there's many of us now here. So we have to really um, take care of like how, how to heal our humanity as, as an organism, um, we have to heal each of us individually, and that takes responsibility and awareness, you know. And with every step, and being really responsible, how do my actions, how do my thoughts um, influence everyone and everything around me, you know? Not just, not just this plant, the substance, this food, this animal is for me, 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 you know, it's, it's us, it's interconnected. And I think that's the beauty of the, the Aquarian age, <laughs> that we, we are going to, we have, um, we have a technologies at hand, you know, and, but we also have um, the expansion of, of the human consciousness. So we have to work with both, you know, and it has to always be with um, honoring Mother Earth, and the bigger picture. And as you mentioned, um, thank you for the example with, you know, eating animals and being vegan. For me, it's the same. And I'm also, I've been, I've gone to extreme vegan, non-vegan, um, eating animals, not eating animals. And I, I feel the same. You know, whatever we do, whatever actions we take, we need to, need to really stop and consider the impact, you know. And, and, and really... With with oh, with humility and gratitude, <laughs> with with every action, I think you know, and balance, yeah. So, yeah, and that really we can we can learn from uh, those beautiful places that surround us, <laughs> honoring them, and yeah, with every step, with every moment. <laughs> mm. 
you, you use this word responsibility and it, it's, I think one of the interesting things for me being here in Peru, because it's kind of like I have a foot in both worlds. I, I have a foot in, in the world of where I come from and, and I have a, a foot in the world here. And, you know, you, you were talking about this idea of, of, of climate change and also responsibility and, and also activism and, and something I've noticed. And again, I think it comes from a good place, but this idea of activism but I find sometimes the energy of that is it's very much like pointing the finger, like you need to do this, mm-hmm. you need to do this, or we need to do this. Mm-hmm. But often I find what are the, the people who are activating, like what are they doing? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a very different energy when mm-hmm. I say you need to do this yeah. versus what am I doing? And, mm-hmm. and even, you know, many of us, we, we come from a culture, you mentioned this idea of consumption where... I mean, I think the U.S. is the worst, mm. but we consume. I, I, I knew the statistic at one time, but I can't remember. But, you know, the average American consumes, I think, something like 80 times mm-hmm. the average human. Mm. Wow. And, and yet much of the activism comes from those people. <laughs> and so, you know, kind of this idea of like I look here and you look at the, the local people living here their footprint is is far, far smaller. And yet they're also not necessarily the ones being the activist mm-hmm. in that way. And so I guess my point is like that idea of responsibility seems, you know, so huge, which mm-hmm. is what am, what am I doing on a day-to-day basis mm-hmm. to actually affect this? Like, and that awareness is a huge thing. Like that's mm-hmm. the first step. Like if I see this as a problem, okay, that's huge. That's mm-hmm. super important. Mm-hmm. But then what am I doing to, to actually affect that? And I think one of these things of like why it's maybe so overwhelming is the lifestyles that many of us are leading mm. are potentially unsustainable. <laughs> and I think it's very, there's a lot of fear if people think about, I have to give that up. Mm-hmm. You know, I... I I get my bottled water from Italy, San Pellegrino or something, and I, I get my, you know, my weed is coming from Italy, and, you know, I'm getting bottles of water, and, you know, the electricity is coming from here, and it's just, it almost seems, I think, overwhelming to people, like, how do we change that? But, you know, you, you mentioned these ideas of, you know, even you, like, you're you're planting a garden, mm-hmm. and, it, I mean, that may seem like a small thing, but that's huge, you know? I mean, not only are you beginning to to not take resources from somewhere else, you're beginning to get mm-hmm. them from here, and there, there there's a there's an exchange, there's a reciprocity. Like I'm I'm planting, I'm giving back to nature, mm-hmm. and I'm receiving rather than just taking and taking yeah. and taking. And there's a there's a guy I've worked a little bit with. He's he's from the Atahualpa people, which are in the the north of Colombia in the Sierra Nevada. And it's really funny. I mentioned this a few times in the podcast, but mm-hmm. <laughs> um, people often ask him like these questions, like you know, why is the world suffering, or why do I have depression, or why do I have yeah. cancer? These things. <laughs> And the answer is always the same. I think people are always expecting a different answer, but the answer is always the same. And he says something like, you're not making a payment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank <laughs> you. Know, you. Yeah. You're, 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 and what I take from that is like, you're taking, but you're yeah. not giving back. Exactly. Like, what is your part in this? Yes. What are you doing to give back? Yes. If we just take and take and take, there's an imbalance. Like yeah. that, it's just, it's literally by definition not sustainable. Yeah. So... We do take things, right? Could we have to? We have mm-hmm. to eat. For, in order for me to live, I have to take food. Mm-hmm. 
but what am I doing to to bring balance to that? And it doesn't mean like every, everyone can't necessarily have a garden, you know, but so what is another way that I can do that? Maybe it's, you know, supporting someone who does or... Yeah, no, I agree. No, thank you. Exactly. No, you spoke my mind. Exactly. Yeah, it is about small steps, I think. It can be really overwhelming, and I think, yeah, that's why, that's why I don't talk about it too much. Uh, I have resistance talking about, you know, how bad the situation is and how much we are responsible. It depresses people. And I've seen it in India when I was living in this community. Um, you know, those 12-year-olds were getting depressed because they were like, we are, we are doomed we're sitting on a on a branch and we're cutting it. We we you know, we literally the world is burning and and they're just like yeah, they were just they were just desperate, overwhelmed and 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 depressed. <laughs> and so I like to look at it from a more positive view, like what can we do about it? Okay, we've gone so far, yes we've gone so far. And now how can we like stop this craziness, you know? And that as you said, awareness is the first step. And then slowly noticing then how can I, what is my part, how am I contributing, what's my responsibility, um, what can I do to change, you know, the way I live in a more responsible way, in a more giving way. Because it is, consumption has driven economy um, in the Western world. And so I have, most of my work is in um, developing countries, because most of the most the amazing, unique flora and fauna is in developing countries uh, around the equator. I, I specialize in tropical plants, so I've worked in, especially when I worked in Africa, I, yeah, it really shook me up. Um, their impact on the world is very small. However, um, I was astonished to, to, to watch the, the elders, you know, the chiefs, they were responsible for the forest. So when, when we, as a bunch of Westerners from Kew Gardens, wanted to enter this unique, you know, primary undisturbed forest to collect plants for, for conservation because we wanted to help them to conserve this area, they needed to do a ceremony. So they, we needed to bring them gifts to the chiefs and they would speak to the gods, to the ancestors. They broke, they broke cola nuts and they would ask for permission. And there was a very, you know, it was, it was like, there was connection. There was connection between the people and the land and the plants. And there was belonging and there was responsibility. There was responsibility. And there was us as visitors and we needed to wait for invitation. So when they, their ancestors, their spirits permitted us to, to enter the forest, we were allowed to go in. Otherwise we were not. So, unfortunately, Peru, that connection is a little bit lost now. So when I want to enter the forest here, or in India too, I need to go to the government, I need to fill in a bunch of papers, pay lots of money, and wait for the paperwork to come through. Unfortunately, that connection is a little bit lost, that the land, the forest, belongs to the tribes. And yes, if you've lived in the Amazon, you know, those people, they feel it's their land, it's their forest. But the government ignores it. You know, they sell their, their primary unique um, forests for, for some mining company, you know, for oil and gas, for whatever, and they destroy it. They pollute the waters. Next thing you know, people have cancer. You know, all the horror stories you've heard or seen. Um, so the, 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 the person who lives on the land, who is part of the land, is completely ignored. And, yeah, those governments... 
So I don't know how to how to change that that chain of responsibility that we are subordinate to those big guys who do whatever they want for money. It's money, business, and power, you know. But so not to get really caught up in that story. Um, you can go into politics. That's, I have one friend in Sri Lanka who, who was so depressed about his land being just uh, converted into tea. And he goes like, I, I don't know what to do. I'm going to go into politics. And I'm going to become, you know, try to change things from the top. So that's one option we can do. I think we can go into politics and, you know, I have friends working in Europe, in the European, European Parliament, and they're trying to work on policies and stuff. And but okay, that's that's sort of uh, sort of bigger projects. But each of us can do something, you know. And as you said, awareness, impact, you know. When I do this, when I do that, how does it impact the bigger picture, nature, you know, traveling, consumption, you know, how many children do I have? All those things, you know. You need to like really think about it. What what's the impact? You know, and yeah, for me when I when I came here, it was it was a real gift to uh, to inherit a barren piece of land, very small piece of land, and then I looked at it and I had a vision, and then I just started digging and digging and and putting more nutrients in the soil, and just for me it was not about I need to grow a bunch of carrots and and kale, but also every step that I did, I was like I'm putting nutrients into the soil. So yes, I'm growing vegetables for me, but at the same time I'm putting in white, white flowers for the animals, I'm putting flowers for the hummingbirds, for the bees, and I am putting nutrients in the soil. So that's, that's how I um, develop and develop my garden. And now it's beautiful, <laughs> and I'm really pleased, and it's like, it's a nurturing place, and, and I can harvest vegetables, and I can see lots of you know, animals and birds and bugs around me. And that's only uh, five months, you know. Uh, it didn't cost me much, very little time. It cost me time. But right now, you know, I have time. <laughs> I don't have a job. <laughs> so it, it, was, it was an opportunity for me to just um, give back to Earth, you know. Okay, I've done this before in India. But the first time I did it in India, I, I didn't know what I was doing. And I learned. Um, I learned from observing forests. I learned from people around me who had already done this sort of work so there's opportunities you know and yeah people live in flats they don't they can't have gardens actually yeah maybe maybe they can't maybe they can't maybe they can look for opportunities there is there is some you know piece of land that can be developed and you know parks that are not unused and we can start doing you know can start planting trees shrubs and flowers and all those you know so they can stuff can be done um not with all the restrictions, a bit difficult maybe, but hopefully we're going to get through this somehow. And yeah, we really encourage everyone just to, even if you just go for a walk and like look, look down, look up, look to the sides, you know, and just see what's around you, you know, because it's, there's a lot, you know, and, and stop and observe. I think nature, nature has so much to teach and uh, it's up to us what we, what we take in, you know, so... Yeah, and balance. Mm. So yeah, we need to do our jobs. You know, we need to do our jobs. We need to earn money. and But we also need to really consider, like, our work. Does it nurture us? Or does it just bring money and makes me depressed? So maybe you just need to question it, you know. 
sometimes it's hard and I, I I've done that for the last I don't know decades or so questioning it you know I love my work but it doesn't entirely make me happy so I need to change somehow I you know um, and that fear comes in you know when we when we just um, just admit that it's fear that doesn't allow us to move forward and make those changes we would like to and as a humanity as as a collective we're going through this bottleneck situation you know so i think at this at this cross, crossroads we have we have the choice with where we go you know we go we go the path of fear and follow the that the craziness that's going around or we go back to nature and i know where i'm going <laughs> so wherever it is you know the earth is it's all one earth so and we are all humanity and and I've got, I think we ought to stop looking at the differences between us and just look at it. We're all in this together, connected. And about evolution you mentioned, uh, we are evolving, but it's not a linear process. Um, what we call it in biology is reticulate. It's, net, it's a network. So it's up and down and it's sideways, and it's up and down and it's sideways. It's, it's, a net, it's a net, you know. And it's complex. So... There is never a simple solution for a complex problem, how I see it. And uh, let's not get over overwhelmed by it, but you know, just step by step. Like, just appreciating the magic around us, you know, with every step, every moment. And together, together we can do this, I think, but we have to do it together, each of us supporting each other and giving back, paying back, you know, <laughs> with full awareness and responsibility. <laughs> That's huge. I, I think, especially in, in in the time we're living in, the the, the the seeing people as different is a is a huge thing. And mm-hmm. the, I think the more we move away from that, the the, the better we are. <laughs> I think one question people have with with the climate is is even the, the the terminology. I think a lot of people get confused with that. I mean, first I and I could even be wrong, but first I remember it was called global warming, mm-hmm. but then that changed, and then it was climate change. Mm-hmm. And what is what is the I guess one why was that changed and then two it seems there's there's a difference between obviously recognizing there's a change mm-hmm. and and to what degree is that harmful mm-hmm. while at the same time recognizing the change is also inherent in everything yeah. so what is that balance of you know, because I think uh, I'm really interested in ancient cultures and, and history. And, you know, I think 12,000 years ago, most of, of Northern Europe and, and North America was under, uh, I think, at, at points like a kilometer high sheet of mm-hmm. ice. And, and I mean, that to me is, it's that's crazy to think about. I mean, you know, 12,000 years ago, geologically, yeah. is, is not long, long. at all. Yeah. So what is... What is that line of, of natural change, because everything is in a constant state mm-hmm. of change, versus the impact that we're having that's creating a circumstance that, that maybe you could say may not be conducive mm-hmm. to, to human existence? Mm-hmm. Because I think there's also the argument, which is we mentioned this idea of balance. You know, like For me, things are always in balance. Mm-hmm. It just may not be the balance that's conducive to us or mm-hmm. to many life forms. But other life forms will come, as you said. You know, Mother Earth is is much much greater than we are. So, mm. if we use the the, the, the yeah. pronoun she, she she will survive. Mm-hmm. 
I would imagine, without question. Mm. But we're potentially creating a circumstance that for us, and, and I think even one could make the argument, you know, if, if humans, if, if we're, if we haven't evolved enough to realize what's good for us, then I think one could make the argument, well, we just need to go. Mm. <laughs> but I think one, one kind of counter argument for that is, we're not just affecting humans. We're affecting, as you said, all that's, of these other life forms. That's it. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, if you say, yeah, we, we maybe you just need to go, maybe you just need to go, but we are affecting um, all the ecosystem around us. I mean, we're polluting water, we're polluting air, you know. We, we, you know, the technologies, the um, advances in, in technologies are having huge impact on on resources, on, yeah... So yeah, if it was just us, I would say, okay, it's humanity, we're just going to agree to leave this planet? Okay, let's destroy it and go. But no, we, we're, going, we're going even one step further. Now, NASA is doing a program to go to Mars. So now we basically destroyed Earth, let's go and destroy Mars. I mean, I don't know where, where's it going to stop, do you know what I mean? So it's, it's like, it's this, it's this anthropocentric view that, that I don't know what... I don't know where it's going to stop, okay? So yes, I, I go, I, I mean, I completely agree with you, natural cycles and, and all that, uh, earth cycles, global, uh, universal cycles. Yes, we can flow with it. But if you, um, in this context, we are supposed to be cooling down. Earth is supposed to be going into another glacial period. We're due to be cooling down. We're heating up. So that's that's not natural earth cycle, okay? So... I don't want to go like let's blame Martians, let's blame the aliens, let's blame someone. I mean, it's we can waste time blaming, you know, but we can just stop and go like, okay, let, let's just stop and, and and change, okay? Because we are not just impacting humans, and it's it's bad enough because if you have children and you know you're gonna leave this earth a wreck, you know, a, a, you know, trashed for for the generations to come, I think that's a bit irresponsible. Because I mean, I had a good time diving in the Maldives, you know. But my nieces won't won't even see this beauty, and I think that's that's not good enough for me to say. I I had a good time on Earth. Goodbye, everyone. You know, all like the generation, um, elder generation. They're like, actually, you've had quite a good time, you know, in between the wars, and now you're like, actually, you're just exiting this planet in the right moment because it's gonna be hard times coming um, ahead of us. But yes, so there's a balance between um, seeing the natural cycles. And not going crazy over this change that's happening. Um, so really seeing in perspective, but taking responsibility and going, okay, maybe three degree warming, uh, it's not healthy, because it's not. You know? So come back to your original question, uh, terminology. So when I, when I started studying cl- plants and climate um, more than 20 years ago, uh, we, we were talking about climate, uh, global warming. Uh, but suddenly we were noticing that it wasn't just warming on a global scale. So some places are warming, heating, drying. Other places are cooling, becoming wet. Okay, So now, that's why I prefer to use global change. Because it's global change, whatever extremes it is. You know? It is mostly some extreme events. Extreme drying, extreme, extreme wet events, uh, weather events, um, floods, you name it. You know? So... The weather, the weather has become more, more extreme on a, on a global scale, and 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 that's it's an issue. If you um, now um, 
need to really think about where our food comes from. It's plants. Even if you don't eat salad and lettuce, whatever, every day, which I don't, however, the beef that you eat, your beefy cow has eaten plant. So you need to consider, so whatever you're eating, you've eaten plant. Okay? So we all eat plants, because the animals have eaten plants. So we need to really take care of uh, our, our agriculture, the way we produce food. It's totally unsustainable. Big, big, big issue. Again, I'm not going to discuss the, the problem the global, uh, the mass agriculture, especially in the US, big scale, very damaging for the earth, for the soil. I mean, the soil is practically dead, you know. Soil is a living organism. It's an ecosystem itself. And we've, we've ruined it with the agriculture. We're putting in chemicals, we're putting in fertilizers, we're basically killing the soil. The moment you kill soil and it becomes... Uh, just some mineral soil, it's, it's dead. It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't serve to, to nurture plants. Um, we've eaten, uh, yeah, I mean, here we're lucky we have access to organic uh, vegetables, and uh, I, I grow organic in my garden. And you notice the difference, you know. Um, from a non scientific view, I would say food that has grown in uh, life, li um, living soil, in a living organism, has got a lot of life force, prana, chi. And we ingest that life energy. <laughs> when we eat food from a supermarket that has been sprayed and grown on like, you know, dead soil and has traveled half around the globe, you now you're adding air miles, carbon footprint, all that, storage, using um, hormones to, 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 to ripen the fruit and vegetables, that food hasn't got that much prana. It hasn't, hasn't got much life force. If you did a chemical analysis on that food, you will find um, fewer nutrients, vitamins. It gets bad uh, much quicker. You know, It's just at all levels. It's not nutritious to our physical body and to our emotional body and to our energetic body. Okay? So um, we, need to, we need to look at that. Like, um, so one of uh, I had big inspiration in India when I when I went there after my PhD. I think my actual real PhD happening in India really when I started growing vegetables in a permaculture community. It it was all about growing local, eating local, okay, and that's possible. I think most people will find that uh, they can somehow find a way. I don't know, community gardens, maybe maybe they just have to move back to land, you know. And now, because more people are working online, so it's actually uh, has facilitated a lot of people um, that they're able to move into the countryside, have a piece of land, and maybe work online, you know. So we can now uh, combine technology. I'm not against technology. I use technology, you know. It's, I mean, we're here now using technology and uh, connecting with the rest of the of the world. Um, I'm not against it. We just have to be mindful about it. We just have to find balance, you know, using it in a wise way. Again, wisdom, it's very important. Discernment, how we use it. It's not just for us. It doesn't just serve us, you know. But I would say everybody, each of us, needs to take care of our individual health, okay? At the same time, take care of the health of our surrounding, of our planet. So, so yes, awareness and wisdom. Definitely two important keywords. And responsibility. <laughs> Hope I've not given it too much of a, you know, round lecture. <laughs> but I noticed just even walking on some of these trails, um, 
you know, it's interesting because there are many different kind of microclimates here. And even as you start to go up, you know, it's much more lush, much more wet. And and just eating some of the things like, like the watercress that's growing mm. or, you know, the dandelion. Or there, there, there's so many plants. And even that food, compared to eating organic food, mm-hmm. feels much more yeah. alive. Do you think that's that's also because of the nutrients? That soil is just... Mm-hmm. It's 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 conducive. It's alive, and and those plants are competing or you know cooperating. But they're the the ones that are are, are growing are healthy. They're mm-hmm. you know nature is saying okay this this plant mm-hmm. is and if this one doesn't then mm-hmm. so it's it's almost like you're getting the plant that's supposed to be growing there yes. and 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 all of the nutrients that are conducive mm-hmm. to that. And mm-hmm. how do you think you can balance? I mean, is, do you think? that can be reproduced by really feeding the soil and, and bringing it to that, you know, maybe it'll never be 100% mm-hmm. like in the wild, but bringing it closer and closer to that point. Yeah, yeah. That's actually brought up one of my favorite subjects, <laughs> which, is, which is like um, foraging and, and wild plant consumption. So not just for medicines, but also for, um, for food. as a food source. So... Yeah, nice, good observation. Um, wild plants um, are definitely more nutritious and and they have more prana because they have they have um, yeah they've grown in their natural environment in the cooperation of the fungal uh, you know associations you know of the neighboring plants the optimal you know conditions in the soil and and atmospheric conditions um, sun and so forth you know. So they they've thrived because they've thrived. We can conclude they've lived in the optimal conditions. Okay, um, so if you're trying to replicate that system into um, in a kind of more controlled way in our gardens, we can. This is where permaculture comes comes in. And actually, when I started doing permaculture um, in India, I found it really easy because I was just replicating uh, natural ecosystems. I hadn't, I hadn't learned, I hadn't even, even to the present date, I haven't read a single book on permaculture. Mm. But I've been teaching permaculture because <laughs> I've lived in forests. And mm. I understand, like from observation, I understood how ecosystems work. And I just replicate the same system. I mean, the principles are really simple. Permaculture is simple, okay? Nothing complicated. Um, if you haven't lived in, in nature or in forest like I have, you might have to read about it or get someone to teach you. But... Um, and those principles, you can take them to any part, um, um, any, any country, any ecosystem, any climate. And what, what I try to do, my, my garden here is those principles, um, intercropping, you know, mixing wild plants and herbs and, and making the soil as healthy as possible, so you're nurturing the soil. And like, my garden is a bit of a jungle garden because I've just re- tried to replicate what happens in nature. You know how things cooperate. Yes, there will be competition. Yeah, I have to interfere a little bit <laughs> to, because obviously my garden is not a natural natural ecosystem. It is. It is. I I put it together, but um, we to a, to to a certain extent we we can replicate um, natural ecosystems in our gardens in permaculture. So really, I really encourage everyone to do it. Permaculture is just a design system. So you design, you plant, you sow in the way, um, using wisdom, use some knowledge. You have to imagine how the plants are going to look like when they grow. And you have to know what you want to put in the soil, what the requirements are in terms of space, height, nutrient uh, requirements, and so forth. Water, 
sun. So you, you have to plan. It is, it's a design system. It, you can't just like throw in things without knowing. So it takes observation and learning and, and, and um, experience over time. But it's, it's so rewarding, you know. And you can't really make many mistakes. So it's a very, very encourage everyone if there has a piece of land or just a bit of balcony space or even like on the windowsill they can they can experiment growing something and it's really it's uh, it's good for the soul too you know uh, just to see your the seeds of your labor sprout and then you can harvest and you can observe you know nature in action um, coming back to um, the foraging and the, and the collecting wild plants and the composition um, to my favorite subject so not just foraging for food, but wild um, wild medicines, I mean wild, wild herbs as medicines. Um, I don't know much, like I haven't done research into the visionary plants, how they're grown in the jungle. I actually haven't, I haven't looked into that. I would like to, I think I will. <laughs> I'm just of interest. Um, but from my experience, also from my work in biochemistry and looking at... By biochemical composition of plants, um, I have one concern that the way agriculture works, because we need a lot of plants to feed a lot of people, it, it, plants are grown in monoculture, in plantations, and that's not a healthy way to, to, to grow plants, because they will attract more pests, they will deplete the soil, there's competition, because if you grow like, you know, you grow next to the same plant, with the same requirements, I mean, if the bug comes around, any pest, any virus, you want to have a feast, free food for all, okay? So in nature, you don't get that, that, that system. You get a mosaic pattern of like different species growing together in unison. So in that way, uh, a pest or bug comes around. It doesn't get very far. Like I see it in my garden. They try to eat one cabbage and there's a very far away when the next cabbage comes around. So they give up. <laughs> and then they don't, they don't ruin my entire garden. You know, pests are normal in nature. And I had one permaculture um, teacher told me once, he said, if you don't have pests in your garden, something wrong with your garden. Because it's mm-hmm. part of nature. But it's balance again. So you provide food for the pests. They don't eat your cabbages or your kale. Now... Coming back to medicinal plants, because of the, um, the increasing requirement for people to wanting to grow, you know, visionary plants, medicinal plants, uh, there's overharvesting happening in the jungle. I don't know the detail. I don't know the numbers. Um, I have a sense that's happening because I have a sense that the consumption is increasing and it's being exported over the globe, and so we just have to also become really aware when we uh, buy herbs, you know, from the wild, uh, we consume plants from the jungle, where, where do they come from? And how are they harvested? And if you cut one ayahuasca vine, do you replace it with two or three? Because it takes a while for them to grow, you know? It's not just like a corn plant that you plant in a few months' time, or potato you can harvest. It's not like that. And those plants grow in the wild, um, they climb trees, you know, they have the certain, you know, they have the community around them. Plant grows in co- growing communities, just like we thrive in communities. So I don't know the constituents of ayahuasca if you grow it in a plantation. I don't know the, the chemistry. I don't know the, 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 
the spirit in them. I don't know. I don't know anything about it. I'm putting it out there. Maybe for someone to, to maybe someone's done some work on it. Uh, maybe I'll look into it. Uh, but I have concern because from the observation of agriculture, um, you know, and also I remember like at some point everyone wanted to eat fish and and fish became that, you know, healthy food, uh, the healthiest food in the globe. And then what, what, what happened in, in the oceans? Like overfishing happened, you know. So where's our responsibility? We can't just go and take and take and take, you know. So we need to we need to see like yes, fish is healthy, but we uh, deplete all the resources, and then uh, obviously if we take that component out of the uh, community, plant community, ecosystem community, we disturb the ecosystem balance, and there's a tipping point. So I think. Um, this now, uh, presently, we've, we've reached some sort of a tipping point. And so, and I don't want to talk about a pandemic, but just to bring it into people's attention, maybe people are aware of it, um, there are going to be more pandemics in the future because of, of the way uh, Earth and nature is. It's, it's not well, you know. And the more we, we tax um, resources and the more we take and the less we take care um, of the ecosystem balance and Mother Earth, the more we're going to be prone to those uh, pandemics. You know, It's just the beginning, I think. And I don't want to scare anyone. It's just we need to take responsibility. That's weird. Oh, that's all. <laughs> uh, so it's not, it's, not, it's not a different story. The pandemic is not a different story from the, from the global change, climate change, uh, global warming. It's the same story. It's just like... We're looking at the mountain, suddenly we're looking at a different side of it. You know, it's the same big issue and challenge that we're um, facing as humanity. And we can totally do it together, uh, but not with panic and fear, but with awareness and responsibility and healing each one of us. You, know? <laughs> you, you mentioned that, that idea of, 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 of fear and panic surrounding the, um, the pandemic. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's... I mean, obviously, it's a big topic because it's actually <laughs> affecting everyone right now. And yeah. and uh, I mean, from my point of view, that 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 fear is. I mean, I guess you could say it's it's one of the downsides of what's happening. But but again, everything serves a purpose. But mm. because you you also said like operating from a place of panic and fear mm. is not mm. conducive. Mm. So. Where do you see that fear coming from? Do you think that's also a disconnect from nature? Like, we don't know how to take care of ourselves. We don't understand what, what individual health is. Like, yep. you know, what is a virus? I mean, probably most people <laughs> don't even know. And, and, and how, what are plants that you could potentially... How do you take care of yourself? And, mm-hmm. and I mean, do you see something kind of nefarious, too, with the, the way things are going, with this movement of, you know, more and more control and restriction? Or do you think that's just part of... Oof, yeah, you know, when... I don't sound negative, but if I look at humanity, the way we behave as, as a collective, um, we behave like a parasite and a virus, you know. A virus and a parasite, they take over... Uh, um, the nutrient supply of another organism, you know, parasite or virus. 
So we just behave in the same way. So it's actually interesting that uh, as, a, as a collective, you know, as a hum humanity, you know, our physical body is, is, is being now um, targeted by, by more viruses and there will be in the future more. And, you know, those viruses, I mean, there's like, I mean, close to a million viruses um, in the animal kingdom. And so now we have this like global war against one virus. I mean, okay. They're gonna be another thousands more, you know. We 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 just want to control every another one, and this one is gonna mutate. I mean, it's it's what I call an arms race in in nature. We can't win it, you know. Uh, we have to cooperate with nature rather than putting this this you know this this like war on terrorism happening that I remember happened some decades ago, you know. It's another war on terrorism. And yeah, it's our responsibility. We we've I mean we've created this, you know. If we have lived um, in balance with nature, that that wouldn't have happened, you know. Anyway, it's happening, and I, I you know yeah I'm not a specialist, and I actually haven't I don't watch much news, don't read much. I'm just gonna try to stay away from all this panic, um, the global panic, because it doesn't serve me, you know. I can just look like in my my surrounding, what can I do about it? Um, to stay healthy, to look after my immune system, not to go crazy, <laughs> not to not to not to be scared. And I'm not scared, you know. Um, I mean, our daily practice is just to know that we are here on Earth for a certain amount of time. Um, we have service to do. We have to take care of ourselves, of the Earth around us. We have to learn, you know, and and not be scared and panic because <laughs> certainly that reduces our immune system you know we're going to be prone to more diseases you know and I think I'm, I'm if I had to express one concern I'm more concerned about global change that's gonna um, impact humanity as a whole uh, in a much dramatic way than this virus you know and if it's not a virus, I'm going to do another one, you know. There's going, to be, there's going to be stuff happening all the time that we have to deal with. And we just have to look at each, each of us individually, like our, our physical health and our mental health, you know, especially our mental health, because that affects our physical health and vice versa. You know, we are, each of us is a, is a complex um, ecosystem. We are an ecosystem, each of us. And uh, we need to take care of that, you know. So... Um, you know, what we eat, how we eat, uh, and then, you know, our practices. Do we practice meditation, yoga? Do we, do we go into nature? Do we connect, you know? And do we, uh, do we connect to our humans, you know? And do we take responsibility for our personal things that we need to heal? You know, every one of us knows their stuff, you know? And yes, we, I think it's a good time now to address all those things. So your work and your podcast bring awareness of the, the options of, of medicinal plants, of master plants, visionary plants. You know, there's help out there. You know, that is one really um, powerful opportunity for change. Because if we don't commit to change, we, we're just going to go down as, as a collective, you know. Or maybe, maybe it's a bottleneck situation. Some of us will be left behind and the majority is going to go I don't know I don't, I don't know <laughs> and, uh, but it is at the moment we, we're living we're sharing this experience in a very interesting um, time where yeah people have realised um, things are uncertain 
But you know, death has never been uncertain. Death always has been certain. And I think the realization, the acceptance of it, uh, actually, it's, it's actually quite calming. <laughs> because once you accept that it is a reality, then we can enjoy the, 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 the road that leads to it, not anticipate the, the final goal, you know. Because there isn't one. There's the road, and we, we walk in this road together. So, so for me, it's really not like getting sucked into that craziness and, and panic and fear, because that will serve us least, you know. Just, I think, just stopping and doing your practice, connecting with yourself, centering yourself, and connecting back with nature, I think, you know. So food, what we put in our body, what we put in our mind is really important. People spend like the days on YouTube watching some crazy videos. You know, I don't know. I don't know if that's, that's help. <laughs> you know, and then they they get um, they get um, kind of they get drawn into this current of, of 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 panic and fear. You know, I think we have the choice what we what we want to listen to. You know, and what we want to believe. We have the technologies now, you know, and I think more so now than ever, we have to be more discerning. Um, so I, I've been trained as a scientist for more than 20 years, and admittedly, I have my doubts, you know. Uh, one important tool that I learned in my academic career is to be very critical. Um, science is not dogma. It's not a religion. It's not something we just believe blindly, you know. We have to really uh, question it. So if and there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of false science being published, and so I really want to encourage everyone just to question it and to really do your own research and use your own use your own wisdom and your own intuition, you know, your gut feeling. Is that really what's happening? Can you believe this? Is that true? Uh, you know, as a human, we don't just have our brains, our minds. We also have, we have all these different layers of intuition, perception, and old wisdom that we can tap into. And uh, we're not a machine, you know. So everyone can, can make their own decisions. And I don't want to, like, uh, badmouth science. It's a really wonderful tool. I'm grateful to have learned logical thinking, critical thinking. I think it serves me well now. Because I'm not going to believe anything and everything that someone tells me, you know. I'm going to, like, listen, walk away, think about it, maybe do my own research, and then um, and come up to my own conclusions. And I think this is really why I feel very grateful to have, have taken a scientific path. Um, I don't think I'm going to be working in science as my main career. I don't know what I'm going to be doing, but I'm grateful for that tool. It's a tool just like technology, computers, mobile phones are tools. But if you allow the tool to dominate your life and use the tool for everything, that's not wisdom. Okay? So we have to use the sermon wisdom as humans. <laughs> we have it. So use it. <laughs> <laughs> well, beautiful. We're, we're, we're actually over two hours. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I told you it would fly by. <laughs> Did I tell you I was a lecturer? I can talk for a long time. <laughs> Well, that was amazing. I mean, that, that seems like a beautiful way to end. Is there anything else you want to talk about or address? Anything else that's on your mind? Um, 
no, I think I said enough. Thank you. Thank you for listening and thank you for your interest. It's kind of a bit a sidetrack from your general interest of your podcast. So I think your listeners, you know, got some inspiration. <laughs> It's beautiful. <laughs> I mean, I, I think everything, everything we talked about is actually directly in line with, with what the podcast is about. And Yeah, just got recently inspired to maybe do a bit more teaching um, of botany and um, kind of combat plant blindness a little bit mm -hmm. so I've sort of been hiding in my garden and hiding in this valley but I think I, I may go back to um, doing a bit more botany maybe some more canopy explorations and teach teach plants you know I'm really passionate about teaching plant identification and just just people I think it's it's rewarding for people if they can identify what you know what family what group that plant is in and maybe some uses and stuff you know it's, it's also it's not my expertise uses of plants but it's definitely one of my interests so i kind of go i want to go into a little bit more but yeah so i might teach a little botany and maybe organize some trips into the cloud forest um as soon as we can travel um so the place where my project my current project is is Koshnipata, um near Ahanako, the station is called Waikecha, which means brother in Quechua. Mm. It's a beautiful station and we have a canopy walkway there. And next to the canopy walkway we have a, a, a big experiment. We uh, installed a big curtain into the forest, in the middle of the forest. Um, so we're trying to intercept moisture from the sides. So we try and basically dry out the, the, the ecosystem behind the curtain and to to demonstrate, to, yeah, to simulate what the effects would be on the ecosystem if the clouds were reduced, mm. you know. So I'm running a few experiments there using mossy plants as indicators over time to show that um, for all the disbelievers, <laughs> people don't believe that climate change is really happening, um, that look, you know, over time, um, if you if you take the clouds away, if they are removed because of global warming, this is what would happen to the environment, to the soil, to the trees, to the epiphytes, the orchids, the ferns. And obviously this is like the basis, this is the primary producers that will impact the animals and the, the, the bigger ecosystem as a, as a whole, water resources, you know. Um, cloud forest being a watershed, important watershed, as I mentioned earlier. So that's just one experiment that we're running in Kostipata right now. That's why I'm here. Okay. Mm -hmm. So hopefully I can travel to the forest soon. Maybe I can bring some people, um, you know, to experience to experience that that magical mossy, cloudy environment. And I have to wait probably till April or May. Uh, at the moment, it's still very wet, and it's um, yeah, it's the road is not so not so great, so we need to wait for the for the dry season. But I hope to maybe share this experience with some people, and yeah, and we can we can do some walks, and I can teach some plants, and maybe do some tree climbing. I will have to have to see. Yeah. <laughs> well, that would be amazing if you do. Uh, you you have your your first uh, your your first guest right here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you.
<laughs> and if people if people are interested in that, if they want to reach out to you, yeah, is they there can contact me? Yeah, yeah, via email or yeah. okay. Yeah, leave great. My email, yeah. We'll put that in the show perfect. notes then. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This was amazing. I, I I personally learned a lot, and I think you have just a, a really beautiful ability to teach and share. And I think the work you're doing is super important. And I I hope you continue to do it in in whatever way that that manifests. Yeah. Thank you for the inspiration <laughs> to share. <laughs> well, great. All right, everybody, that's it. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Uh, for me, this was a really fascinating conversation, getting to learn some different things, uh, really getting to see her point of view, which I think is really beautiful. And um, yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed it. As always, if you're able to help support this show financially, that's a really big help. Patreon is a really good option. Uh, for just a few dollars a month, you can subscribe and get things like early access to shows, bonus material, extended footage, the opportunity to ask questions and get responses. Um, so that's a really big help. To all the people who have subscribed via Patreon, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And if you're able to do that, thank you very much. There's also the option of donating directly via PayPal. There's also a link in the show notes there. And then if you're not able to do that simply going on the YouTube page, subscribing to the show, turning on that little notification bell, and liking the video. That's a really big help. And then with the audio version, going on Apple Podcasts, subscribing to the show, and leaving a starred rating and a review. That's a really big help. So all the people who have done that, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And um, uh, my next guest... Um, actually, I'm not sure. Um, I'm still not quite sure of the order. I'm also preparing for some dietas coming up, so I'm going to have to uh, see who I can squeeze in and, and how the order will go, but uh, there's some really good guests coming up. So that's it, everyone. Thank you guys for tuning in, and I will see you on the next episode.